Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm just going to put this mic on there, don't I? Yep. It's the premise of the documentary is people's lives and there's some really lovely like human interest pieces in it. Sorry, this is Dave, by the way. Dave, Tony, Tony, Dave. Dave, Dave Roman. Yeah, Tony, Tony. Good to see you. Fabulous. So you're obviously totally ignoring the camera, which is looking at me. Of course. From the news team at Virgin Media Ireland, this is Room 631, Ireland's COVID crisis. I'm reporter Zara King. This six-part podcast series contains the unheard tapes from the Virgin Media News documentary team. These episodes come from hours of footage taken during the making of our documentary, Ireland Under Lockdown. Throughout the series, we'll hear the thoughts of key decision makers who sat inside the walls of room 631 at the Department of Health and the voices of the people whose lives were changed by those decisions as a global crisis unfolded in their homes. Yeah, are you happy now with the... Dr. Hulahim, what were your thoughts in those early stages in the beginning when we could see what was unfolding and happening in Wuhan? Well, at the very early stages, what I remember most, actually, my earliest memory is reading a little bit about this and some of the medical and other sources of information that we have and seeing a little bit about it in the media. I remember being out for my daughter's birthday, which is the second week in January, um, and uh, being a little bit preoccupied and looking stuff up on the phone and stuff I shouldn't have been doing when I was out for her birthday um, because I was concerned. I kind of knew this isn't good. Uh, this is going to be trouble. And that's how it turned out. So in the early days, it was a case of just trying to find out as much as we could about something that appeared to be over in China and it was been reported in the media here as a thing that belonged to China. But I think those of us who knew understood this as the potential to become what it has become. And, uh, you know, in that situation, you're, you're seeing the first sort of news of it logistically as a CMO what are you doing to try and put plans in place how does that work well we have plans so in the sense that like we have plans around pandemic preparedness they were mostly focused around influenza because that's the the virus that has the most significant pandemic potential we did have a couple of coronaviruses which I'll come back to um, SARS MERS uh, in the previous two decades Uh, so it's about activating those plans and then you know like any of these plans they never quite describe the precision and the detail of a specific issue so it's about adapting those plans and getting ready so mostly at the beginning it's around gathering the kinds of people that I need to be talking to together to see what we all make of this to try and make as much an evaluation of what we need to do as possible connect into what the ECDC is saying what the WHO is saying and just try to uh, anticipate as much as we can about what we might need to do. And do you remember uh, the first NEFID meeting where you discussed SARS-CoV-2 and when was that and what was that like? I do, it was it, about the end, it was just before the end of January is my recollection. I remember calling that one, we had maybe four or five meetings of what I would sort of the, say the key public health people who were involved in the NEFID. Uh, uh, late night phone calls, we were kind of trying to uh, assess the evolving and the changing situation and right around that time the um, WHO declared this uh, a FEC as they call it, P-H-E-I-C, 
public health emergency of uh, international concern. And that's the formal declaration that the WHO makes that there's something new going on the world needs to turn its attention to. It releases their resources to start focusing more on that particular disease. So that was, a, I think that switched the world on to the fact that there's something we were already focused in on this, but at that point I think everybody else began to think there's something new and unusual going on. And we called our first uh, NEFET meeting right around then and uh, started the process of meeting on, on a pretty regular basis and have been doing so ever since. What was the tone from, from people who were, as you say, at the top of the know, your virologists and people like that who were, you know, the most informed, I suppose, at that time? What, what were they sort of indicating and saying at that time? Did you really think it was going to reach our shores here? We did, absolutely, yeah. We knew this had the potential to spread. It was only going to be a matter of time. And, you know, there wouldn't have been a huge amount of air trans transport links directly between Ireland and Southeast Asia and China and so on at that point, and maybe particularly at that time of the year and so on. But really, we knew it was only a matter of time before we began to see cases occurring in this part of the world, in Europe. And once that then happened, the, the potential for it to appear here is a case. Uh, I think it was about six weeks or so before we saw a case actually on Irish shores, but by then there had been a substantial amount of cases already in, in Europe. So it was no surprise to us when we started to see cases appearing uh, right around Europe. And it was those images in Europe, I think, that really woke all of us up, the public, to this. Yeah. Because, I mean, the, the photos and the images from Italy, I think, have haunted a lot of people. And we saw the, the mass graves and the mortuaries and things like that. I mean, even for you seeing that, was that quite shocking? Uh, well, it, it was. It was a reminder of the kind of potential that these diseases have and the kind of first expression in, in, in Italy. Uh, and they were really unlucky, uh, was to have it appearing at the same time in a number of different locations uh, and to really begin almost as something that appeared in their intensive care units. But by then it was clear that there had already been established spread right across um, a lot of the population in, in Italy and uh, they were overwhelmed very, very quickly and they were unlucky. And I suppose that was the part of Europe that had the greatest initial difficulty and that gave all the rest of us an opportunity to learn somewhat about what we need to do, how responsive we need to be, and kind of showed us really what the power and potential of this virus is to very quickly surge and create the kind of challenges even for well-developed healthcare systems in big, big modern cities with plenty of resources in relative terms like Milan and so on. And so we all feel very sorry for them uh, and you know, we were all... Uh, tuned in obviously to not just the media reports and things that were on, on TV but the, the formal WHO and DCDC reports about all this and really trying to step up our own uh, responses to try and ensure that we could prevent a similar thing happening here. COVID-19 in the Republic of Ireland. Health officials say this is not unexpected. The first case of coronavirus confirmed here in Ireland. Inevitably, it did arrive here, and um, I remember it the Saturday night that we all came in here. I think it was nine o'clock the Saturday night at the first Mass, press conference, yeah. and um, 29th of February. Of February, yeah. yeah. And I think you know, I think we all kind of got a notification and scrambled in. But obviously, for the hours before that, you'd been sort of dealing with the news. Can you tell us how you found out about that first case and what was the without compromising any personal data of the individual, but just to no, talk us through? Yeah, I mean, we'd been really busy in the weeks up to then, and. Um, we were working through evenings and weekends and so on, all in preparation and just all in studying and serving and, and trying to understand what was what was going on in other parts of the world and so on. And uh, so we had a team of people in here on, on, on that particular, it was a Saturday, uh, and I can remember I came in myself at about four o'clock uh, to just connect in with the team. Uh, and as I was coming up in the lift, I got a phone call from 
Ronan Glynn, in fact, it was who phoned me to say we have our first case. So I said, okay, and I knew at that point we were moving into a different phase, if you like, uh, and that that would immediately get people's attention, the sense that like this is no longer something now that's just on the television screens, that's just happening in Italy or elsewhere in Europe, or it's just happening in China. Uh, it didn't surprise us. We, we would have been saying, I'm quite sure at the time, uh, it's only a matter of time before we see a case here, and a case wouldn't surprise us, and that we were prepared for it, and we were. Uh, and so it wasn't, but, but of course, when it, when it appeared, it became a, uh, a significant moment for the, for the country. Yeah. And, and then that changed everything in terms of it was, it was finally here, it was confirmed that it was here. Um, you know, again, just I suppose to talk us through that first night, that first press conference, and you're having to tell the country this sort of news. How do you feel in that moment going into something like that? Uh, it's big news to tell the public. It is, uh, it, it is, but like I think we would have prepared pretty well and given people a sense that this is something we were expecting we weren't going to be surprised by and the fact that there was a case here didn't either mean that we weren't prepared nor did it mean that we couldn't cope and manage in terms of what we, what we would need to do. We just continue to activate our plans and, 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 uh, and continue our preparations, which is exactly what we did. Uh, um, we had to build into that then was the, if you like, the, the, the communication and establish really from the get-go, uh, which is something that I think has worked well in this country that hasn't worked so well with colleagues in other countries, that we had a direct relationship with the public and we had an opportunity to explain directly from the technical people, if you like, like me and, as you say, the public health people, the virology people and, and others who are part of the kind of regular explaining of what's happening to the public and that we established that kind of relationship right at the beginning and that was important because in, in the context of, well, if you look at any of the international guidance or the ECDC guidance, it will stress the really significant importance of direct to public communications on the part of people who have, you know, either responsibility or expertise and we were lucky to be able to establish that from the get-go. We knew we'd have to do that once and that then has become a regular feature of how we've responded to and managed this particular disease and our response to it. And so those first two to three weeks were a lot of big decisions had to be made and as you mentioned the communication side of it was so important there was a lot of news that had to be relayed to the public to try and get people on board and to change their behaviours to change the way we live our lives basically that all turned around in those kind of those first two to three weeks take your time. Um, so I suppose you know uh, I know if you were saying maybe you might talk us through sort of like the the decisions that were being made and, and the back and forth to government buildings and to maybe any anecdotes from that particular time that you'd be happy to share with us? Um, sure. Um, uh, clearly there were a lot of big decisions that had to be made, but like much of that early stage in the response was, uh, was about us uh, communicating and explaining to people things that we might have known or things that were already well within our preparations. So like our hospitals were well prepared, for example in terms of having the arrangements in place to deal with very infectious, infectious diseases like this one, diseases that are very easily spread from person to person. So we have level one, two and three uh, within an infection control framework, hospitals, uh, and we, it, was, it was a matter of just activating those. So we knew what kinds of circumstances people would have to be in. So at the initial stages, uh, all cases that were identified were admitted to hospital for infection control reasons, if you remember that. I mean, that's obviously we stopped doing that at a certain point in time uh, quite early on, but that was the initial stage. So when a case was picked up, it was brought into hospital and put into a effectively isolation type arrangements to limit the possibility of this case spreading to other people in the, in the country, to put a ring of steel, as it were, around, around each individual case. Uh, we knew we had the preparations in place to do that and it was a matter of just activating those but a big part of it then became explaining this to public and explaining the arrangements that were in place and so on and then in those early days we were challenged like uh, 
a number of um, countries with things like cases coming in on airlines where contact tracing would have to be undertaken on 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 a, on a, on a plane and people who were who were contacts or on a plane with a suspect case would all have to undergo at the minimum explanation and engagement with public health authorities in, in some cases uh, uh, further evaluation and that was a big part of that, that initial preparation and in fact I remember the very first case that occurred on the island was actually a person who was resident in Northern Ireland who had transited through Dublin airport and transited through um, from Dublin to the north which involved and required detailed cooperation between all the authorities in the north and uh, and in the south working together to try and contact trace that particular um, case so um, uh, so that kind of established in the get-go, you know, what's something that's worked all the way through this very close communication and cooperation between ourselves and our colleagues in Northern Ireland. Locking down the country, again, a very... We, we, ne- we, we never, never call it lockdown. Never you, ha- lockdown. you hate the word lockdown. I, the word, I know it, you hate the word it's lockdown. It's simply, it means different things in different places. So I if you know. go to any one of the European countries now that has strict social restrictions in place, they're not exactly the same. There's a slightly different blend. On the news today tonight, it's a level five, six-week lockdown. Significant and indeed quite shocking the degree to which these measures have been escalated, as we were the saying. The bulk of the population has to observe the stay-at-home advice. Except on a Good Friday, like no other, the country remains on lockdown as restrictions on the movement of people are to be extended until May the 5th. At the very beginning, it was a set of measures that we thought were, like, at the, when we look back on it now, they look relatively mild in comparison to some of the measures that we ultimately ended up having to undertake, or even me- measures that are in place at the moment, where we were essentially asking um, schools, universities, Childcare facilities um, to to cease um, um, uh, to close, in effect, uh, to close down visiting to hospitals and nursing homes, and, and this was and, and and people to work at home as much as possible, and all of those kinds of arrangements. We'd never done anything like this before as a country. So even though, like, it quite quickly became the first in what was a three-phase uh, um, uh, restriction of t- in terms of social and economic activity. Uh, um, it was still pretty draconian at the time. I mean, the circumstances that kind of led up, up to it, I can remember pretty well, where we had done one of our evening press conferences and we came back upstairs and we had some information from Killian de Gascon, the director of the Virus Reference Laboratory, that already that afternoon there were a number of more cases that we were going to be reporting the following day, much, much bigger than any number we'd seen in the preceding days. And so we knew something significant was happening and we'd started to see uh, some activity in our hospitals and intensive care and so on. So we had a strong sense that uh, things were changing as they were and uh, that we needed to move quickly. Uh, and so we convened a NEFET meeting for nine o'clock that night, having been at a press conference with all of you guys telling you how this, uh, we knew it was changing that evening. And, and ultimately, I'm sure you know, uh, came out of that NEFET meeting at about one o'clock in the morning to meet uh, the Minister for Health. And the tarnished at the time, Simon Coveney, who was um, the Minister for Health at the time, was Simon Harris, obviously, uh, who was here because at the time the Taoiseach was in Washington on state business in Washington because it was, in the, it, was, it was around the St. Patrick's Day period of time. And so we met the two of them. And so that wasn't an easy thing to do, to tell the Minister for Health and the tarnished that, that uh, we have to shut all the schools and universities in the country. And this is one o'clock in the morning. And, and it was announced I've the following morning. Mm. And how long did that meeting last? With them? Oh, I think 
my recollection is we started at about one or something of that order um, and I think it was at least three I think by the time we got home so I'm sure it was an hour and a half two hours something of that order um, yeah yeah and so then it was the following morning that the Taoiseach spoke it to us from morning, Washington, yeah. was it? Yeah, about 11 o'clock the following morning, Irish time, in and around that, I recall. At that, at that time, I was over in, 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 in government buildings watching uh, his address um, from, from the steps in, in Washington, yeah. It was 11 o'clock the following morning, yeah. And how did you feel when you saw that address happening and all of that unfolding? Well, I felt like, I felt obviously first and foremost we were taking the right kinds of actions. I did feel that. I felt very strongly and clearly that these were the right actions for us to be undertaking. No matter how unprecedented it was for somebody like me to be effectively advising government to close huge, huge parts of the activity of the country. Um, but obviously you've, you feel that like it's an owner's responsibility, that like these are these are very very big um, decisions that government has to take, and having the responsibility, if you like, for leading the team of people providing that advice. Yes, you're you're, you're conscious of of of, of getting it right, uh, but not being imprisoned by the requirement to get it right in in terms of moving quickly. Because moving quickly, and you've heard that I'm sure many times said by by people like Mike Ryan and the WHO, that's the real imperative of this disease. This disease moves really, really quickly. And if we prevaricate and delay our assess- assessments and decisions, we, we, lose, we lose time and we lose ground in the management of this disease. And so the schools closed and people very quickly got on board at that time, didn't they? I mean, the public were phenomenal in terms of their response to that advice, yeah. weren't they? I yeah. mean, were you impressed by how quickly people got yeah, on board? Yeah, it, it really was an impressive national effort. Um, and then, of course, we had to go back to the well, as it were, twice more over the course of the following about two weeks. So we did another set of measures, maybe about 10 days after the first set, where it was clear to us that we were still in a deteriorating situation. So even though we had done what we did as a country in relation to schools, it wasn't enough. And then again, so that was a Tuesday of a week, is my recollection. And by Friday of the week, we were back to go three days later, going back to government to say, no, 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 we need to go further. Because we were watching indicators that were just changing uh, in a really worrying way and changing really quickly. Uh, And we wanted to intervene on that. And... um, uh, each time that we went back and asked government, each time that government asked the people, uh, the response was there and it was fulsome and it was very impressive. And then there was a huge amount of, I think, social innovation around it, uh, all reflecting the kind of solidarity that there was in the country, I think, at the time. You know, from your local GA club to local residents associations and you, you name it, people were just getting involved with the kind of local and then ultimately national um, uh voluntary effort and uh, to support the state, to support every individual in the state to try to take the measures that needed to be taken. And do you remember, Is it? I think it was a Friday night you mentioned when Taoiseach Leo Rekker yeah. asked people to stay home, the yes. stay home message was delivered. Yes, that's, that was the can final of the three. Can you recall that night and, oh, yeah. and walking back and just your experience on that evening? Yeah, I can recall uh, because um, we did a press conference that I was part of that evening um, when those 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 measures were announced um, and then there was a I can recall doing um, a live f- feed that evening for the 9 o'clock news and I remember because it was so cold standing outside that particular night But uh, and then walking back and the streets were kind of eerily empty and it was it was it was a very visual and very very easy to see um, a measure of just how much life had changed this is like you know half nine on a friday night the center of dublin 
workers and just send her around the place. Uh, and that's what life was like. But on the flip side, what, what there was, it was a sign that everybody was was listening and engaging with uh, with the advice when we felt that was necessary. And so it proved, because ultimately, um, although we did see a significant amount of infection in this country, uh, it was nowhere close to either where it could have been or where many other very close neighbours of ours, east and west, as well as other European countries, um, ran into much, much more difficulty than we did, which is not to in any way downplay the mortality and the number of hospitalizations we saw over that time period, but we did really suppress, as a society, this infection very, very significantly and intervened on it at a much earlier stage than most other countries. And just to go back on that idea of the empty streets, because I, I even remember myself leaving here and I, I kept thinking every evening, I'm never going to get used to how quiet it is. Yeah. It was bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, it was kind of a bit, I don't mind saying a bit scary. I mean, I remember one night because I walk in and out to work uh, and uh, with um, I left Colm Henry, who's a colleague I'm sure you know well, um, on Stevens Green and looked down Dawson Street and along Stevens Green after I left him and there was nobody not a vehicle, not a Lewis, not a person moving. And this is like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night and walking home, those kinds of... It was a bit kind of freaky. You like the company of noise and people when you're used to living in the city. And it was very strange. And not even a car would pass. Yes, yeah. That was strange, wasn't yeah. it? But it was a sign like of everybody was listening. Everybody was, was staying at home. They were complying fully with the public health advice. Um, and were you happy with the progress that was made during that stay home period for through you know in terms of that people followed it do you think it achieved what it set out to do in terms of suppressing the virus i do to be honest i mean i think we got our reproductive number which is just it's not the objective but it's the measure if you like of how our objectives are being met um uh, down to a very low level um probably with the exception of 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 know parts of China and so on we got ours down to about 0.5 I can recall maybe in parts of China it might have dropped to as low as 0.3 in in in, in some of their um, but they would have had very strict suppression measures in place uh, in response to their surges of infection um, so uh, it had that impact then in a, in, a, in a relatively short period of time obviously it's it, it suppressed the, a potential wave of much much larger scale infection that we didn't get overwhelmed uh, and our intensive care units, although we peaked out at something in the region of about 150, give or take or so, uh, people in ICU at a point in time, uh, it was still well within our total ICU capacity and the work that had been done by the HSE to create the, 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 the capacity to ab- absorb or to admit that scale of, 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 of uh, even though it's a large number, um, Uh, the HSE did that and we didn't get as it were overwhelmed in the way that unfortunately many other European countries did and where people who needed access to intensive care who needed access to ventilation weren't able to get it. We thankfully didn't have that experience in this country and it continued on then to the point at which uh, you know by by May certainly it was clear we were getting back down to much lower levels of transmission but it does take time for that amount of infection to as it were um, uh, if I could say kind of wash back out of the population and we got back down to quite low levels during June and then into the early days of July and uh, it was only the con- sustained, like it was a very sustained effort on, par- on the part of the public uh, and, and so much so that like we were, uh, although we had a, a five phase uh, plan for resumption of, of activity, we thought it appropriate at a point in time that we'd actually 
revise and I think it was after the first two stages we looked at the remaining three and and advised that they be uh, folded into two if you like and that we got through the measures a little quicker than than we might have anticipated at the beginning yeah ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Louth Nursing Home confirms the deaths of 23 residents since April 1st, many COVID-19 related. It's been a difficult time for nursing homes right across the country over the last number of weeks. Nursing homes were severely impacted and looking back with hindsight now, were there things that could have been done differently or perhaps quicker? Well, I mean, the key thing with any of these things is that obviously the lessons are learned. There was a process put in train which led by Cecily Keller and her team to look at exactly what could be learned and applied into the future because I think we know and knew that the virus isn't going to go away uh, by itself, uh, that nursing homes in any surge of infection, which is what we've seen again in recent weeks and months, uh, are going to continue to be at risk and that we need to continue to satisfy ourselves that we're doing as much as we possibly can to try and apply those lessons and limit the impact on people who are in those kinds of vulnerable uh, situations and settings. Um, and I think that like, while there are lots of different actors, if I can put it that way, people who have responsibility or organisations that have responsibility, the nursing homes, they, those that are in private ownership, those that are in public ownership, those that are involved in regulation, those that are involved in our roles uh, from a public health point of view, giving advice, uh, those with policy responsibilities, it requires all of us to pull together in the same direction to try and apply those lessons and ensure that they're applied as much as, as they possibly can. So I don't think it's, a, it's the responsibility or the fault or anything of any one. I think that, that it's, it's a pulling together of our whole system to try and provide assurance of ongoing protection. But yes, you're absolutely right. In the early days, there were challenges for nursing homes that had significant levels of infection among staff and were losing staff and needed, you know, emergency, you know, measures to be taken by the HSE to put staffing arrangements in place or to facilitate um, um, in, in, in other ways pressure to be taken off them to supply PPE to uh, uh, roll out very uh, rapid programs of learning for, of infection prevention control because in many nursing homes the world of infection prevention control is not part of the the day-to-day -day reality and yet you have to try and raise all those standards quite quickly so I think really good work was done by a lot of people to try and uh, learn those lessons as we went and apply them and I think we can see in in the most recent surge of infection we've had in the recent weeks and months although we've continued to see a rise in nursing homes numbers uh, and the numbers of locations uh, in which uh, infection occurs 
uh, a good deal of protection. The great majority of nursing homes have not experienced further infection in this second surge, even though we've had widespread community transmission, and I think that is a good sign. And touching on that point that you made there about nurses and doctors and frontline workers, an enormous personal sacrifice made by a lot of these individuals, you know, who left their families to go out into, you know, dangerous situations and sort of the unknown in a lot of ways when they, when this first landed. Can you speak to that effort and I suppose how you feel about those people and the work that they did over the last few months and they continue to do now? Yeah, um, absolutely, and I think healthcare workers really at the front line know, know in themselves that they're often in, in, in work situations at risk in, in lots of different ways, but also understand uh, the dependence the population has on them because uh, the protection uh, of healthcare workers and the resilience of the healthcare workforce and its capacity are key elements of our ability to protect the health of the whole population. So uh, this is something, in a sense, that healthcare workers, if I can put it this way, kind of sign up to as a, as a career choice. This is something that is part of the kind of uh, the, 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 the spirit of um, um, volunteerism or, um, or vocation is the word I was looking for, that, that, that doctors, nurses and lots of other healthcare professionals and when I say that, I mean everybody. I mean the people who go into healthcare settings. So that's people to, as it were, um, um, uh, to, to cook and prepare food, to go and clean wards, to, to help patients to move around hospitals, uh, as well as people who are involved in the direct care of people. They're all important to the provision of a safe environment. But doctors and nurses know that the spread of infectious diseases, you only have to think about things like antimicrobial resistance. And you've heard of bugs like MRSA and CPE and so on and you only have to look at the winter in any given winter in this country and the, and the spread of flu to see that you know the world of infectious disease the risks that attend to you as a health professional the risk of picking up other forms of infection like hepatitis and these are all part of the everyday reality of provision of healthcare. But I think we also have to reflect when we talk about healthcare workers and the sacrifice they've made is that there are lots of other people who are essential to the provision of everyday services and everyday um, uh, parts of the economy that we all need to survive. So look, if you think about people who work in the supermarkets, the supermarkets kept going through all of this, the shops where we all go to buy our food and our basic provisions and the staff in those, in the midst of all the fear, not often in high paid jobs, got on with that job and did so really well and like if you think about that those retail experiences they they were all very responsibly handled and managed by the 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 by the retail organizations to make them in as much as they could safe environments apply the learning listen to the public health advice and the people providing those services the guardie in the streets the I uh, could go on listing but there are lots and lots of people who are frontline workers whose work exposes them potentially to this virus if you find yourself as a, as a, in the course of your work, just meeting people in an undifferentiated way. In other words, you're just meeting the general public and whatever it is you do, you are in the front line of the response to this disease. And we, we owe thanks to every one of those people. And that kind of brings us into the, uh, we spoke to say a frontline worker who is uh, working with women's age taking yes. calls. And uh, we know that there were an increase in calls to women's mm. age, particularly during, we're gonna call it the stay home period because you prefer that to lockdown. Um, was that something that you were quite mindful of as you made decisions? Was it something that you really had to consider? Um, women's Aid saying, you know, for many people, home wasn't the safest place to be at that time. Yeah, no, we, we recognised that and we were really sensitive to that, really sensitive to the fact that, like, also for children, 
uh, there's for some children school isn't the safe or sorry home is not the safest place sometimes school offers a, a refuge and a support for children in certain settings um, and uh, and yet here we were recommending that we close schools so we, we, we didn't do any of that without being cognizant of those kinds of implications um, uh, and the challenge that that would represent and that maybe for some when you talk specifically about the issue of domestic violence we now know and we have the data uh, in the earlier days we had you know the, the strong sense coming from Angarda Shikana that they were getting called to more of these kinds of uh, circumstances and um, um, uh, and we feared that those would those those realities would would, would arise for for some women and for some families in difficult situations uh, where the use of for example alcohol and so on would become a domestic rather than a public thing and all of this was more under the carpet and, and harder to see uh, so we were concerned about the, all of those things which is why we still believe although there were very draconian measures they're very strict measures that we were asking government to to recommend and to put into place they were still proportionate to the risks that uh, arise in relation to the disease uh, and because it would be much simpler for us if we didn't have to worry at all about proportionality is to say let's shut all the shops shut, sh shut everything in society close the airports that would probably have a greater effect in terms of preventing disease transmission but it wouldn't be proportional it wouldn't be something that we could recommend so we had to try and you know uh, in as much as we possibly could weigh up um, the various effects that were likely to arise while at the same time in the first instance assuring ourselves that we were moving quickly enough to interrupt the transmission of the disease and I think we've saw in the in the first wave that in 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 in, in terms of the speed at which we act, act, acted, not always on the basis of perfect information. You can't sit around waiting for perfect information to tell you that you're absolutely right um, with an infection that moves as quickly as this. And I think now in the tentatively two weeks into the, um, into the, uh, the six-week stay-at-home uh, period, and by the time this programme goes out, uh, this will be over, but um, and we'll know how it turns out. But two weeks into it, I think there's good reason for us to express some optimism about how we're uh, how we're progressing in comparison to other European countries, just as there was back in the first uh, surge. We've heard a lot of different uh, anecdotes about what family life has been like for people through this and uh, they've talked about their mental health. We've heard from one family in the documentary who, um, a young mother who had postnatal depression and found being isolated from the support network at that time really, really tough. I mean, again, these are probably all things, were they, that you discussed at Neffet and that you had kind of kept factored into decisions that were made, was it? Yeah, we would be again cognizant and 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 and, and as much as we could factor these things in, into our decisions and understanding that if we're asking people to stay at home, to isolate themselves in their houses, if we're asking people uh, to essentially um, um, to close businesses for periods of time, to put people out of work, that clearly that's going to have an enormous mental health impact on people. Uh, and uh, whether that's at the individual level or at the family level or at the wider community level and that that does risk um, some things that uh, um, it, it, it creates it increases the risk of individuals who, who don't have mental health of running into mental health challenges it creates more difficulty for people who have established mental health uh, needs in getting services and and the resultant deterioration from that and it does it does potentially increase the risk of self-harm you've already mentioned uh, domestic violence substance misuse all of these kinds of things that play into uh, if you like the collective mental health of the whole um, of the whole country 
Do, um, do you worry about the collective we, mental we, health we, of the country? We try to ensure that the measures are in place for as short a time as possible. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask you that. Is that something that you worry about, the collective mental health of the country? Because I think we hear from people maybe who never experienced problems with their mental health who are sort of feeling it now. Is that something that you worry about? Yes, of course. Um, and like our responsibility here doesn't extend to COVID, uh, COVID alone. We're responsible for health in, in, in all of its dimensions. Uh, so we're trying to make balanced decisions around um, uh, the provision of all services. But the nature of this particular virus is that it has the potential to overwhelm health services. And we have to take early measures that are uh, um, the kind that are in place at the moment now that have a huge impact on the operation of the economy and society simply to allow us to, to protect the things that we actually want to protect as much as, as possible. And those basic things, obviously, people's general health, but the provision of health services for all of the things that people need health services for other than for COVID, and that includes mental health services. So uh, in, in a widespread transmission environment with, with uh, both staff and the public picking up infection, the continued provision of any service, including mental health services, is threatened. We're just talking in relation to people losing loved ones and, and having mm. to sort of have very small funerals and mm. very sort of mm. paired back goodbyes. It's, it's, we were talking to an undertaker about it and we saying like it's so part of our culture and mm. every fibre of our being is to turn up and pay your respects at a funeral. Mm. It's such an Irish thing to do, mm. isn't it? I mean, mm. do you think we're forever changed by that? Do you think it's something that sort of changes us? Um, do, do you ever see us kind of going back to that bigger funerals and bigger, bigger goodbyes? Um, well, look, it's been very difficult, of course, for people who have been in those difficult... I mean, it's, it's, it's hard enough to lose a loved one. The circumstances in which people are losing loved ones often in healthcare facilities where they can't visit, and then the, the grief that's associated with that, and then not being able to have the support of family and friends in the way that normally happens, the marking at the end of somebody's life, you know, a community that might want to, uh, to honour and respect... And I think that has a particular... Um, impact on Irish people just given you know the, the 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 large funeral is still a big phenomenon in this country which where it probably isn't in many many other developed countries it's still very much a, a part of who we are as a country yet we know that like it's congregation people coming together um, uh, embracing as it will often happen in, in funeral situations for understandable reasons and then sometimes the uh, the getting together afterwards you know, which is which is something we've all participated. It's a very valuable. It's it's a, a very valuable part of helping us to move on. Feel that bit of support for people that's, who spend time with us socially around the time of a funeral. That all of these things are no longer possible. Um, um, but I'd like to think that uh, that this is something that that is not going to last forever, and that we'll begin to find it as we as we make progress as an international community on understanding what it takes to, trans to, to suppress the transmission of the disease and maybe science will bring us down the road of vaccination to the extent that we can have an ambition for much of the kind of activity as a population that uh, we want to restore or being restored. Um, and I could express that level of it, it optimism as opposed to certainty for the future. So we can be optimistic about those things, but it is challenging for, for people at the moment who are, who, are, who are celebrating the lives of people who they've lost um, in, in such constrained circumstances. And that was so important, wasn't it? Every night when we would report the numbers, that we would remember those families, that we reminded people that these weren't just just statistics. Yeah, I think it is. And, um, and without in any sense wishing to appear critical, I think there are many people who've advanced all sorts of different 
theories and propose strategies for responding to this disease uh, and they do so in good faith and so on but some of them you know almost discount a certain amount of mortality certainly seek to discount mortality when it happens to people who are older um, I don't know many older people who embrace death uh, they may accept it. Uh, they may accept that it's nearing, but em- embracing it is something they wish or that they don't, you know. And for many of us who have elderly relatives who are in that kind of age group, we don't discount the loss of their lives in the way that has been advanced by some, or discount the loss of life of people with underlying illnesses, as though in somehow simply because you've had a chronic illness which has placed you at increased vulnerability, that you're a lesser person uh, and your life is not worth saving or measures to protect you or that in some way or other um, um, I, f- I find that a really if I, if, if I can say offensive uh, to be honest um, way in which some of this has been characterised I think we need to treat every single person who is alive and our responsibilities to them in the same way uh, mortality has been experienced by uh, a very defined population for the most part of people who have a particular vulnerability either because of their age or their underlying medical illnesses and we have an obligation to do what we can to try and prevent that. Yeah, I mean, they lived and mattered to their families at the absolutely, end of the day. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so uh, moving through the year, um, I suppose mm. you came back a couple of weeks ago. Um, at the time when you came back and things were, were sort of in a different place to maybe where you'd left it, um, were you, how were you feeling in that first week back? Were you concerned about the numbers? Obviously, you were keen to make some important changes to try and get things back on track. What were your thoughts and feelings in making the decision to come back even at that time? Did you feel it was a necessity then? Well, I was glad to be back at work um, and there was a lot of work to be done by everybody so I was keen to, to, to do what I could to help. Uh, and yeah, I think I shared the concern that everybody had, that people at the NEF had had that concern ever before I came back. But I came back, yes, absolutely concerned from day one um, about the level of infection that we had. But even more so the rate at which it was changing. It was really changing quickly at that point in time and uh, and I knew that and I could see it and I knew that uh, it was important for us to begin to address that which is exactly what we've done as a country. And I know you've spoken about it before as well, I think you know it's probably clear to a lot of us that it's the households mixing is problematic if we're honest about it. I mean it, that is a problem. Is that something that we need to probably as we move into next year look at we talk about support bubbles, do we all need to kind of identify households that we're going to be, this is our household we mix with and we kind of manage that? I mean, is that something that we're going to have to just accept until we're at widespread circulation of a vaccine? So those are exactly the kinds of things we're talking about at the moment uh, as part of the work on NEFIT and we'll be working closely with other colleagues across government because uh, when we get to the 1st of December uh, we anticipate there will be a change and we'll be changing to something. What we need to try and do is in as much as we possibly can from all the evidence internationally and our own experience over the last number of months is apply that to try and ensure that we can keep up a standard of behaviour that allows as much as possible of the things we want and limits as much as possible the the spread of the infection. So trying to identify from all the different things we do, what, what is it that's particularly risky? What is it that's particularly safe? And our understanding of that is evolving and improving all the time and, uh, and to try and apply that. And so some of the kinds of things that you're talking about there are things that can be considered in that kind of context and we're giving some consideration to those and, and, and a range of other measures to really try and identify. Look, there are certain types of thing that really, things that really facilitate this spread. You've heard me talking about alcohol, the role that alcohol plays in this society as a particular 
it, it, in, in, in all of its settings. It, it facilitates the kind of behaviour, and sure, we all know what we're like when we've had a, maybe one more glass of wine than we should have had, uh, or one more pint of beer than we should have had. Um, we're not as inclined to keep up the kind of high standard of social distancing and so on. Um, so we have to apply that learning as much as we can. What's been something that you've taken from this year, maybe efforts you've seen from people, or what's been a lovely positive that's struck you this year in all of this? I think, um, and there's a risk that might seem twee, but genuinely, I think that we've we've kind of found within ourselves uh, a rediscovery of, of things that are actually valuable and ordinary things that we can't do anymore, that we miss. And now we kind of value them and we don't take things for granted quite as much and hopefully we find a little bit more time if we if we can get back to um, um, some of the kinds of activities that we all miss of kind of cherishing them a bit more and cherishing each other and um, I think that uh, things that we took for granted like whether it's um, sporting activities even just you know just speaking personally going to a GA match you know this stuff I miss um, and now you know value it a little bit more than we might have done previously and or going you know going to a pub to meet a friend for a pint or these are these are ordinary everyday things these are the things that I think everybody misses most um, and do you miss do you miss going for a pint yourself do you miss catching up with friends and things I like do. that I do absolutely yeah but like it's no more than anybody else these are the sacrifices that we all have to make uh, and the time isn't right unfortunately now for us to have crowds going to GA matches and crowds going to pubs um, where we keep up the high standard of behaviour that we have at the moment we can restore some of that kind of activity and do it in as safe a way as we possibly can and the hope for the future and for 2021 is that we'll begin to see some developments particularly in terms of vaccine uh, uh, availability it's not going to change things overnight even if we've got really effective vaccines it's going to take time to roll them out and to give them to all of the people who benefit from them there's been a massive demand for this right around the world, quite obviously. Um, and then obviously we'll be dependent on uptake and on the effectiveness of those vaccines. And the more we have effective vaccines, um, uh, the better protected we're going to be, obviously. Uh, but we might still, even in the context of vaccines, still need to keep up a certain amount of protective behaviour uh, of the kind that we've all now learned. I mean, you were talking earlier on about our first press conference. I say, if you looked back at us, you'd probably see us all sitting there right beside each other. And now that would just look unusual. We've kind of re, we've all reassessed our our, our 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 evaluation of what's what's normal, and maybe we won't go back to some of those kinds of things that we've reset our sense of normal social distance from from one another. Uh, and so we'll have to keep up some some of those kinds of behaviours, uh, even in the context of vaccines. But I think there is hope for for 2021 and beyond. So do you think we're forever changed by this as people? I think we learn things from it for sure. And like there probably has been very little that's happened to mankind, even adverse things that hasn't brought something good in terms of learning and brought massive amounts of innovation. So I couldn't possibly quantify it, but I'm sure in business terms and social terms, there's been all sorts of innovation. Um, um, in, in terms of adapting and changing and building resilience into organisations and companies and into economies and so on to protect against these kinds of things for the future. And I'm sure all those things will, will serve us well down the line. They don't get us out of the hole that we're in right at the moment. Um, and So I think we've learned things that will change us for sure.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 